The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to SiriusXM's Cars and Culture. I'm your host, Jason Stein. If Rick French isn't the busiest man in show business, he's certainly close. And listen closely, it's a laundry list of activities. Rick's currently working with the NFL and NHL on technology to improve helmets and better protect players. He's spending an unusual amount of time in Malta filming a movie, one of five he has in various stages of development. He's a co-owner of the Daytona Tortugas and an investor in two NBA franchises, Atlanta and Sacramento. He's a national trustee of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum and holds board positions on the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation, the Texas Heritage Songwriters Association, Teen Cancer America, and UNC TV, as well as North Carolina's public broadcasting system. Oh, and he's also chairman and CEO of French West Vaughn, one of the largest agencies in the world. And what exactly did you do today? If you're Rick French, you're at the epicenter of so many interesting activities, one might say that he's truly helping to develop, cultivate, and create culture. And he's one heck of a car guy. Most of his many career moves are intertwined with the automobile. In fact, he once risked his life for a car. The stories, the people, the experiences are numerous for a guy who seemingly is involved in everything. Not to mention a historic backyard concert every year in L.A. that attracts the who's who of the music world and helps raise money and awareness for teen cancer. At the time of taping, Coldplay was considering how to get Chris Martin to the event. But let Rick tell you his story, one filled with passion and automotive energy and all of the elements that bind the fabric of America. Rick French, entrepreneur, entertainment mogul, and a true car guy. Today on Cars and Culture. Hi, I'm Rick French, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Well, it's always good to have a fellow journalist on the program. Uh, it's not often that we get the chance to talk to journalists who have become movie producers and minor league um, owners and members, national trustees of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum, but here he is, the journalist, Rick French. How are you? <laughs> hey, thank you, Jason. Well, reform journalist, right? Right. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about the movie first. I know you're uh, you you are just starting. Well, you're you're going to be spending some time in Malta coming up. Malta. So uh, you're going from North Carolina to Malta, and we'll be spending uh, quite a bit of time under development there. Let's talk about the movie to get to get us uh, uh, started off here. Sure. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me today and uh, enjoy your show. And uh, so it's, it's an you. honor to be part of it. So, uh, yeah. So the movie is uh, is called Not Without Hope. And it, it's a it's a story that's based off a tragic true story that took place in 2009, where two NFL players, one whom played for the Detroit Lions, Corey Smith, the other Marquise Cooper, who played for the Oakland Raiders. They had been former teammates with the Tampa Bay Bucks, went out on a fishing trip in the Gulf of Mexico with um, a friend of mine, Nick Schuyler, and his best friend, Will Bleakley. And uh, unfortunately, uh, tragic events unfolded where their anchor got stuck uh, at a fishing hole 70 miles out in the Gulf. And uh, a bad storm was was coming. It was it was forecasted to be the the worst storm to hit the Gulf of Mexico, and it turned out to be that way in about a quarter century. And uh, they made a fateful decision to not cut the anchor, but instead tie it to the back of the boat and try to gun the engine to dislodge it. And it flipped the the boat, and it plunged them into frigid cold waters. And uh, basically two and a half days or 43 hours roughly of, um, of them being in the water <laughs> ensued. And, uh, you know, it was, um, it turned unfortunately into a, into a terrible tragedy where there was only one survivor, Nick Schuyler. Um, and he was found 43 hours later 
uh, by the United States Coast Guard after a heroic uh, search and rescue effort. And, uh, and that's the story. And uh, it became a, a New York Times number one bestseller. It spawned uh, Oprah Winfrey specials and, um, and an HBO Real Sports segment that, that won an Emmy. And, um, and so that's the movie. That's a, that's a story we're telling as a, as a scripted feature. It's been in development for 13 years, and it's kind of had its own wild ride in trying to, to get the movie made. Um, so there's both a feature version of this story that is uh, began production here um, really just a couple of days ago in Malta, I'm heading to the set to oversee production. Um, but there's also a documentary version of the story that Dwayne Johnson and I are, are making together for a major streaming network. And um, so there's two versions of the same story uh, being told. Uh, the facts are the same. It's just how you're how you're telling the story. And so, um, so that's the movie that, uh, that, uh, will be, you know, will be releasing probably in 2024. So it's, uh, it's directed by Joe Carnahan, who's uh, well known for his movies, the gray and, and, uh, smoking aces and so on. And, uh, Zachary Levi, who stars as Shazam, uh, is starring and, uh, Pierce Brosnan is, uh, is playing the, uh, the Coast Guard captain and, uh, Joe Beth Williams is playing the role of Nick's uh, mother, which kind of the thought of her going to his funeral is what kept Nick going and kind of kept him alive. And so it's a, it's a star studded cast and um, we're looking forward to honoring the memories of those that were lost. How did you get involved? So the family reached out um, actually a lawyer for the family reached out to a colleague of mine in our Tampa office uh, back in 2009, just days after the tragedy. And uh, there was just a media onslaught. Uh, you had two NFL players lost at sea, right? And so um, the worldwide media kind of descended on Tampa and the family needed some help. Nick was rescued. He was in the hospital. He was unable to uh, speak on his own behalf. And so they asked if, um, if our firm, my firm, French West Vaughan would, uh, would represent, uh, the family. And so, um, I agreed to do that. And, um, one thing kind of led to another and publishers and other producers came calling, uh, after Nick finally spoke about what had happened. And, and ultimately, um, he asked if I would take on a, a broader role in kind of just managing this whole process. And so I brokered the book deal with HarperCollins. It became the, the New York Times bestseller and did a lot, helped with the publicity tour and have shepherded the movie through its its various iterations. Um, you know, we were about to make it two years ago with Miles Teller starring and just weeks before production, COVID hit. And we couldn't make the movie. And and prior to that, Dwayne Johnson himself was set to star as Nick Schuyler, the survivor. And the studio that um, that had attached him was forced into bankruptcy. Um, mm. And so there's just been uh, it, you could almost make a movie about the making of the movie. It's been right. that difficult to actually uh, make and tell the story. But um but here we are, and it, it's finally in production, and we hope to, you know, honor the memories of of those that were lost, and really do so in a way that doesn't just make people remember how they died, but gives some perspective of how they lived. Right, right, amazing. I sort of um, half joked at the opening the, your your journalism background, which is of course where you started when you first left school. But could you ever have imagined getting involved? as a movie producer. Now, and there's days I question why I ever got involved <laughs> as a movie producer. Um, you know, no, I, I could not. Um, but, you know, here's how I look at it. As a journalist, you are, you have a certain palette you can paint on, right? It may be very short form in terms of its content, or it may be long form. Um, all journalists are storytellers in a way. And so, um, the move into uh, from journalism to public relations uh, and advertising where we create short form content all day um, wasn't that big of a leap. And so then taking the leap from there 
to where you have a short form content that you're producing to having a bigger palette for long form content and film and television and the things that I'm doing now was just kind of a natural evolution. But if you asked me back uh, when I graduated from Oakland University as a, as a journalism major, if I ever thought I would be making major motion pictures in Hollywood and working with Dwayne Johnson or working with, uh, I've got uh, three other projects, a couple others in production, another major music biopic going into production later this year. If I ever thought I'd be working with those people on a daily basis and uh, and shepherding these projects, the answer is uh, surely no. <laughs> well, you're still telling stories. Let's yeah, talk about exactly. those. Let's talk about those three other projects and uh, specifically the one that you just mentioned. So, so right now I've got a. Um, I have a documentary in production in the UK on the uh, the late rocker Eddie Cochran, who um, who died tragically in a taxi uh, a cab accident in the UK uh, shortly after Buddy Holly died, who was a close friend of his. And so, uh, I have the privilege of of being chairman of the board of the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation. So, that's a conservatorship that was set up by his widow Maria Elena Holly. Um, to oversee the exploitation of Buddy Holly's rights and legacy. And so um, after conversations with her and, and others who were kind of in the Buddy Holly camp about their, what they thought was a miss back in the original Buddy Holly story and that the, the story wasn't told quite the right way, even though it got critical acclaim. And it was the first music biopic that kind of made Gary Busey's career. We decided to retell that story through a different lens. And so Buddy Holly was very much the Jackie Robinson of, uh, of his time in terms of a barrier breaker and, and so on in terms of melding cultures and musical influences together and so on. And so we're telling it, uh, through that lens. And we haven't announced it yet, but I'll, I'll tell your, your listeners here, John Cusack is just attached to, uh, hmm. uh, to play Norman Petty, who was uh, Buddy's uh, brilliant, but a little bit controlling man of a manager. Uh, Nellie is set to star as, as Chuck Berry, Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black uh, is set to play Maria Elena wow. Holly. So there's a there's a big cast that has been assembled. It's set up at a major studio. And so uh, I needed to get through making and delivering for the most part, Not Without Hope and the documentary version of Not Without Hope called Four Down, which is set to open at Sundance next year. Unbelievable. I mean, you're also managing the, the company that you lead, French yeah. West Vaughn. You're also involved with minor league baseball, two yeah. NBA teams. Yeah. And we haven't even gotten into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet. <laughs> I mean, Rick, this is a full slate. <laughs> it is a full slate. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and there's there's How there are days it? where it feels it feels a little more full than others. I'm uh, sure. You know, yeah, I I have great people that I've surrounded myself with. They they help uh, carry the water on a lot of these uh, these initiatives. Um, you know, the agency has. Uh, it's been around for 26 years and I've got some great partners and senior executives who, who do a great job for our clients. And that allows me to have a little bit of breathing room to explore some of these other projects and things that I'm, I'm interested in. And so, uh, you know, and, and baseball has its own cadence. And so that moves along and then you have the off season. And so, you know, I've just kind of found a way to, uh, to kind of have my hand in and, 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 oversee a lot of these things during different parts of the year. So um, I obviously have the ADD as well, apparently, because <laughs> I have to have that many things to, uh, to try to juggle, but it, it kind of works for me. You've had two instances in your life that have really shaped where you would ultimately, um, where your career would ultimately lead. They both involve cars. Yeah. And they both involve Detroit. Let's talk about the first one on Friday, March 13th, 1987. Yeah, fun day. What happened if, that day when you were 24 years old? Yeah. That really changed the course of your life? Well, so so that was a Friday the 13th, as you said. Um, so there is something to that, uh, uh, you know, that idea. 
So I was, um, I was trying to make it as a, a professional tennis player. I had played uh, college tennis. I'd been a, a good, very good junior player. And um, I had, I was kind of giving it a shot on tour. I had a job as a journalist because, you know, tennis in those days, you weren't making a lot of money, uh, especially on what's the equivalent today of the satellite tour. So I, I was still writing for newspapers and so on, but um, I was home from a tour stop and uh, I was, uh, was dating a girl who later became my, my spouse, but um, in, in the gross points and we'd come back from the ice capades and a night out with, uh, with her sister and her boyfriend that became her, her husband. And, you know, after, uh, after coming back to her parents' house, uh, her, her father at the time was vice chairman of Ford. Uh, he had, he was head of the, um, us, uh, heavy truck division for Ford as well. He worked on the team that worked with Lee Iacocca, uh, on the Mustang originally, who, by the way, Lee Iacocca and uh, his family used to be next door neighbors to my grandparents in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Mm. So there's a lot of, a lot of inner things that are intertwined, but anyway, long story short, came back from the ice capades and, um, left her house and went to get in my car and three uh, kids, 18, 17 and 16 pulled up behind my car. And, and actually the car I had just bought with the limited amount of earnings that I, uh, I had won on tour was the Ford EXP. Sure, uh, sure. You remember that car when sure. at the time Small, the two seaters were, yeah. yeah, were, were really popular. Um, they asked me if I wanted them to steal my car, to which uh, you might imagine what my response would be. First of all, I was surprised that somebody's asking if um, if I wanted my car stolen. But then, when I was I was scraping the snow off the windshield and got into the car and tried to back up, they still wouldn't move. So I walked up to the car and confronted confronted them, and they. They got out and jumped me, and I was able to. Uh, was an athlete and strong. I was able to fight two of them off. The third one had a a nine inch buck hunting knife, and we got into um, a tussle on the ground after I knocked one of the kids out. And um, but he had that knife, and he had it held in between his fingers um and he continuously stabbed me so he stabbed me in the back six times um, mm. and uh, that effectively uh, i survived i was i was in critical condition uh from blood loss and so on fortunately the the police and and uh ambulance and that were able to get me to a local hospital and to save my life but that essentially ended my professional tennis career and my aspirations for that and while it it probably didn't have to. At the, at the time, there was no provision for something like this on tour where um, where if you had an, an injury like this, you would retain your points. And so later on, when Monica Sellis right, was, was stabbed, stabbed on the court, back. they created what essentially became the Monica Sellis rule to protect a player's points. Right. But this was something different and, and prior to that. And um, and so I would have had to go through the challenger circuit again. And after all the rehab and loss points to try to get back up to tournaments where you could actually make some money. And so at that point, I decided, um, given the circumstances that um, I had a choice to make, I could either rehab or I could uh, pursue, uh, you know, my a full-time career as a journalist. And, and that's what I chose to do. And so uh, it set me off on, on the path. And, you know, when I give lectures and, and talk to people, I say, you know, the uh, God works in strange ways, right? Because um, I think I could have slogged along on the satellite tour and, you know, and, and, and certainly made it up to the, I think, the, essentially the major leagues of, of uh, professional tennis. But I was never uh, Bjorn Borg or John McEnroe or Jimmy Connors. And so... Um, I probably would have slogged along and I would have let my college degree in journalism get stale. And uh, instead, this set me on a, a different course. 
and it set me down the path of journalism that's led to you know my public relations career and everything else that's come along so in a strange way i think uh these three kids who were high on meth um and, and they were tried and convicted and so on but uh um they almost did me a favor wow then it's another ford vehicle <laughs> yeah several years later leads you to where you're sitting now <laughs> yeah it really crazy another enough, scary right? incident yeah you know so i uh i was it was a it was a late january day uh as you said a couple of years later i had had gone from journalism to a a position with comerica bank in public relations and when it was still headquartered in detroit and uh and then left there and went to an agency um that that's still based in the Rensen. And, and long story short, I was heading to my office when uh, my car uh, kind of slipped off the road. It was very icy conditions. I had a Ford Thunderbird at the time. And that was the rear wheel version of the Thunderbird. And uh, loved the car, but it had no traction in snow. <laughs> and so after waiting for AAA to, uh, to get me out of the ditch uh, and freezing cold, I walked into my office around noon uh, that day and uh, my phone was ringing and I picked it up and it was a recruiter who was calling about an opportunity here in North Carolina with a chemical company. <laughs> Excuse me, they were looking for a head of corporate communications and wanted to know if I would be interested. And um, I, had, I had been working on a chemical industry account for this, this PR firm in Detroit and I said, I'm, I'm really not interested in leaving Michigan. You know, I had family there. I, I, I love the Metro Detroit area, still love the Metro Detroit area, have family there, and now business interests in back in Detroit again. But I just casually said, so what's the weather like today in North Carolina? Now, whether it was true or not, he said uh, it was 72 and sunny. And after freezing, after after they they towed my car out of that ditch, I said, um, all right, maybe I'll come down and interview with you. And, uh, and I did. They got me down there literally a couple days later. And it was un a little bit unseasonably warm, but it was uh, low 70s. And uh, and they would not uh, let me leave uh, here in the Raleigh-Durham area without an offer in hand. And they, they made me such an attractive offer at the time that there was almost no way to say no to it. And so that's how I, I ended up in North Carolina here in 1991 and have made it home ever since. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with filmmaker, business leader, and car guy, Rick French. And to see my interview with Rick, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel, like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back to the program. I'm Jason Stein. Now the continuation of my conversation with filmmaker, business leader, and car guy, Rick French. And to watch my interview with Rick, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. This is Cars and Culture, and certainly there's no more cultural um, uh, icon than the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It preserves culture. Yeah. It keeps culture. It celebrates culture. And within the music culture uh there's of course a celebration of cars so there's an intersection there tell me how you got involved in the rock and roll hall of fame as a national trustee yeah it's 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 kind of an interesting and um coincidental story so i was i was on a trip to china uh on behalf of uh, the white house we were we were negotiating with the Politburo there over media censorship policies in advance of the Beijing Olympic Games, of the Summer oh, Games. Oh, wait. Yeah, so in 08. So this was in 05, 
have to think about this now, 05, that these negotiations and discussions started. And, and it was because I was on the board of the um, council of PR firms at the time. So they asked several executives who had both public relations and media experience to be part of these discussions. And so uh, for six months, you kind of prepped for going over there as part of this mission. Uh, the mission itself was highly unsuccessful. Uh, the Chinese people were uh, in the government were very warm and cordial to us as visitors, but uh, in typical fashion, they will listen, nod their head and do exactly what they've always done. <laughs> and so in, in trying to uh, affect policy where, where people who were coming, you know, to, to Beijing at the time would be able to freely talk and express their views and even talk about things like Tiananmen Square, uh, which of course to the Chinese never existed. Um, they, they just, um, would not would not really respond to anything that we were talking about. They, everything was under consideration. But one of the guys that happened to be on that trip uh, was a gentleman from Cleveland who uh, is a really dear friend of mine now. But he uh, he was the CEO of America's oldest PR firm, which is based out of Cleveland, Ohio. And we had you know official delegation dinners and lunches every single day and evening during this, you know, 10 day trip. And one night over, uh, over, I don't remember, I think it was Peking duck. We were eating. Uh, <laughs> it, he said that he was not traveling back with the rest of the delegation because he was staying in China for the Rolling Stones first concert in mainland China in 25 years. And I said, wait a second, how, how did you get tickets to something like that? And he shared that he was on the board of trustees, of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I casually said over a very large Budweiser because, you know, it's funny in China, um, Budweiser is their import beer, right, at the time. And uh, so they served us a lot of Budweiser. And while I can't say that I'm the biggest Budweiser fan, uh, that's what you drank. I casually threw out, if you're ever looking to expand the board, you know, keep me in mind. And uh, I told him a little bit about helping. Uh, uh, we were representing Ford at the time. And Ford uh, was one of the early corporate partners to Fremantle, the production company that produces American Idol. And they needed uh, Ford to uh, to come on board to help underwrite, to help get that concept off the ground here in the United States. So we had helped, uh, you know, put that together and so on. And so uh, long story short, I just said, if you're looking to expand the board and marketing expertise, keep me in mind. And, and, uh, and he remembered that conversation and six months later asked if I was interested in uh, meeting some of the, um, some of the executive team of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if I was, um, wanted to stand in nomination and he threw it out there that it was very much like a job interview, which it is to be a trustee that uh, we're kind of like Supreme court judges. We don't have set term limits. We, we do have terms, but the entire board kind of rolls over from term to term, as long as you're making your commitments and being involved and contributing to the mission of the organization. So it is, so um, they treat it very seriously when they consider a new trustee coming on because they may be stuck with that person for a very long period of time. Right. And so, uh, so he, he kind of prefaced this as like, happy to put your name out there. Uh, there's a lot of people interested in being a trustee of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You might not be selected. You probably won't be selected, but I'll throw your name. And they're like, well, thanks for the encouragement. It sounds like I'm, I'm going to offer you, I, I, I'm going to introduce you for this this almost job opportunity where you're going to spend a lot of money and time and effort, and you're probably not going to be selected anyway. And for some reason, I said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and here we are 17 years later as as being a national trustee of the Rock Hall. I leave for uh, for London, where we're actually having our board retreat in a couple days uh, before I head to Malta. Uh, it's the first time we've ever ever had our, our board retreat over overseas. And it, it's been an incredible experience because as you said, it, it is the institution that uh, that protects and preserves and honors the contributions of these incredible cultural influencers to all of us. And uh, it, yeah, it's a privilege to, to be involved in it. Well, incredible. You mentioned the wide range of 
um, acts who, who are inducted, seven of them this year for the 2023 class. Kate Bush, Cheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, George Michael, Willie Nelson. Yeah. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. Yeah. Yeah. Rage Against the Machine and the yeah. Spinners. Rage Against the Machine and Willie Nelson. I mean, if that's not a wide spectrum, Rick, I don't know what is. <laughs> and that's the idea. You right. know, I, and, and honestly, um, when when Jan Wenner, who was the founder of, of Rolling Stone, um, was chairing the nominating committee and he was he was also cha- uh, chair chairperson of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation out of New York that runs the inductions. He had a more narrow, I think, view, and that's not being critical of Jan, but he had a more narrow view of the definition of rock and roll and what periods we should honor. And when John Sykes came on board, who found, you know, he was the founder of MTV and uh, VH1, he had that more that wider view of it, right? And you, you can understand why the MTV era kind of ushered in new kinds mm-hmm. of artists that you were really spotlighting and VH1 uh, evolved that further. And so, um, you know, when you look at this year's class, you see that you have a Willie Nelson and some people look at Willie and say, well, he's country. Well, there's a lot of artists who started out as country artists and have evolved. I would argue is Taylor Keith Swift. Urban today... What's that Taylor Swift? Is Keith Urban today a country artist? Is he a rock? He's one of the best rock and roll guitarists that we've seen in in many decades. Um, so there's a lot of artists that have shifted their styles. And Willie actually started very much, you know, in that that Texas kind of uh, early stage of both country and rock and roll and crossing over. It just uh, it's taken us a long time to to evolve our definition to where we would look to honor him. But obviously we're very excited in a year in which he's celebrating his 90th birthday to, uh, to be honoring him this year in the same way that we, we honored Dolly Parton last year. And and then look what Dolly has done. Not, not only did we get Dolly in after she wasn't originally sure whether she fit the definition, but she's just put out a new rock and roll album, which yes. is by the way, very good. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and in bands like Rage, you know, Rage had been on the uh, on the uh, the ballot multiple times and had not gotten voted in. And, you know, as uh, they fuse, you know, rock and roll and hip hop and uh, political rhetoric and so on. And there's somebody that we obviously have felt for a long time needed to be in. But there's a misconception about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's a, there's a feeling that when an artist either doesn't get in, that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is keeping them out and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we create a slate of nominees among so many that deserve consideration. Then it is up to the voters, uh, the majority of whom are living inductees. So when you are enshrined in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you have a vote until your death. And the majority of of um, of those that vote today are the living inductees. So it truly requires a jury of your peers to vote you in. And so we create the slate every year and then we turn it over to the voters and it's uh, managers, record executives, uh, station managers at uh at various format stations. So, it, you know, a diverse set, the, obviously those of us who are trustees and we turn in our ballots and the ballots decide who gets in, not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, we just try to create uh, diversity in the ballot. And what we try not to do is to create a ballot every year in which the same kind of acts are up against each other because all you'll end up doing then is splitting the vote and none of them will get voted in. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be very careful in how we construct the ballot to give diverse diverse artists the best chance we can for them to be voted in. And look, there are times where um, it takes a long time for us to put somebody on the ballot, a kiss, a Chicago, a, Moody Blues, you know, bands like that that probably should have been on the ballot earlier. And then the first time we put them on the ballot, they get voted in. But with a band like Rage Against the Machine, this was their fourth or fifth time that they had been on the ballot and had 
had not gotten in. For a Cheryl Crow, a Missy Elliott, this was the first time we put them on the ballot and they got in. For a George Michael, this was the first time. Um, and so, and Willie, for that matter. So we, we um, it is a very diverse class and it should be a really fun show on November 3rd at the Barclays Center in New York. Well, fitting for Cheryl, you know, when you think about it, we've had Jay Ward here on the program who was part of uh, Pixar Studios and did the Cars films. And of course, the first song that was in the first Cars movie was Cheryl Crow, a song called Real Gone. I'm American, but I like Chevrolet. My mama taught me wrong from right. Uh Cars and music, they kind of go hand in hand, don't they, Rick? I mean, uh, if you looked at the array of individuals who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and how automobiles have influenced lyrics and songs and settings and cultural impact, right? Well, you, you, of course, right. Um, you know, from from Elvis's, uh, you know, kind of pinkish Cadillac. It's not really pink. We have it in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, yes you do. Uh, you know, to to Don McLean uh, drove his Chevy to the levee, right? Yes, and talking yes. about Buddy Holly's death. Yes. Um, cars are such a part of the songwriting process. With um, you know, we romanticize our vehicles, right? And so it's easy for a songwriter to sit down and write about that experience from, you know, love, young love in, in, in the backseat of a car, mm-hmm. right? Through, uh, through cruising, you know, Bob Seeger cruising down Woodward Avenue. Uh, you know, you could, you could just, you could cite thousands and thousands of examples of some of the most iconic songs being anchored by the automobile. And uh, I don't think that's ever going to change. And country, every country song today seems like, you know, <laughs> you know there's, there's old jokes about what, what makes up a country song, but pretty much your truck is in, is in almost every song. Heart Like a Truck, one of the hits Heart right like now. Heart Like a Truck, yeah, yeah Lady Wilson. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Cars for you. Uh, let's talk about them. Obviously, you grew up in the Detroit area. Yeah. Cars have been a part of your DNA. Everyone has fond memories of their first car. What are some of yours? <laughs> so I'll tell you, my first car was was an AMC Pacer. Oh, sure. Uh, my friends used to affectionately call it a fishbowl on wheels. That's the Wayne's World I, vehicle. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I, it's funny. I, I came home from... Uh, the there was a, a festival that was held every year on the the riverfront at Hart Plaza, and it was pretty funny because it was the very first time I mentioned Budweiser, but it was the whatever year this was was the the very first time Bud Light was introduced in the U.S. market, and they did it they did it down at the festival, and I was pouring beer at the festival. I was in college at the time, and my my parents knew I needed a car. Um, and so my dad took some money, um, out of my savings account and he contributed some and he went and bought an AMC pacer and the thing had rust on it. It needed to be bondoed and repainted, but it was within whatever he decided my price range was. And I got home that night from the festival and there's this pacer sitting in the, um, sitting in the driveway. And I thought, Oh, wonder who's staying over at our house. And it was very late. My parents were asleep. I went to bed, got up the next morning and said, whose car is that? My father said, it's yours. I bought it for you. And then I found out he bought it with my money. Uh, <laughs> and it probably wasn't, wouldn't have been my first choice as a car. But um, but I quickly, you know, we, we did the work. My dad and I did the Bondo work and got the, you know, got it repaired and repainted. And it, it worked. And uh and I had that for a little while. And then I went through a, a progression, like a, a, a lot of young people have used cars before uh, from uh, uh, from there to a Ford Fiesta to a Mustang uh, that leaked oil like crazy, but it was a cool car. Uh, the seals just, uh, they would leak in my parents' driveway uh, to the point where uh, my grandfather got cardboard and put them underneath. <laughs> and uh and so on. And then I, you know, when I started, uh, you know, making some real money is when I bought that Ford EXP, which, you know, to me was real money at the time and, uh, have had a, a progression of, uh, of cars since then. I w- I've always been a, a fan of cars with just 
beautiful lives that uh, that were unique. I never wanted to own the vehicle that everyone else had. I was always looking for one that had a style that was all its own. And uh, I've kind of continued that, you know, to this day. Anything in your current collection that you really admire? So I drive the Maserati Levante as mm-hmm. my uh, as my day to day car now, and uh, I I was lucky enough to get the very first one that was uh, delivered here in the state of North Carolina when they were first released. I had that car for a couple months, and then if you want to go to a third incident of car of car, it was my birthday. I was coming back from a charity golf event. And a woman who was texting and driving, um, I guess, was on her phone and looked down. She had her kids in her car and she was about to rear end a person in front of her. And she yanked the car to her left and she hit me head on at 50 some miles an hour on a two lane road. And uh, fortunately, that car had, you know, it was built well. It totaled the car. It was only a couple months old, but and I had some minor injuries from it, some chemical burns from the airbags and so on, concussion and that. But uh, she totaled the the brand new uh, Levante that I had, uh, but I survived and uh, you know took a little while, bought a new one, and now I'm on my third one. So I'm a fan of that vehicle. Um, I still um, every every time I drive it somewhere, people stop and look at it. They go, Hey, can I look at that? And, and I've got it with the, I've got a, a charcoal gray with the, the red interior, the red leather interior. So it really pops. So I, I love that vehicle, but I've been a fan of, I mean, I've had everything from uh, Porsches to uh, Jaguars to, uh, to the Mercedes uh, when, when it first, well, not when it first came out, but shortly thereafter, I had that uh, 600 SL convertible, um, and so, you know, I, I, I love cars. I, you know, I think it's rooted in the DNA. If you grew up in Detroit, you've got an appreciation, uh, for, for those. I remember, um, when the infinity J 30 came out and kind of those slow plies, I had to have one, um, love that car, partly because it had that round digital clock in the, in the middle by the dashboard, which That's I right. thought was yeah. so interesting and unique as a design element. And so um, I'm sure that when the next car comes out that is kind of in an exotic category that that really speaks to me comes along, I'll be in line to uh, to get it. Some might not know you raise money for a great cause, Teen Cancer America, and there is a backyard get together <laughs> that occurs once a year, right? Once a year, yeah. And putting this year's show together right now. This is pretty special stuff. Tell me about the backyard concert. So, you know, it's, it's funny because when you, when you're on the board of the rock and roll hall of fame, it leads to you being asked to be on every other music board um, that anybody can think of. So (laughs) I went from that and I'm now on, on five different uh, music based uh, charity boards. Uh, But one of them, is one that was started by the rock band, The Who, Teen Cancer America. And that started, there's a little bit of a backstory. There is a charity in the UK called Teenage Cancer Trust. It is the most respected and I think beloved charity in the entire UK. Um, The creative community and the music community has gotten behind that forever. It was started by Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend and Eric Clapton and a number of Paul McCartney, a number of the prominent uh, artists in the UK to provide funding for teen cancer units throughout the UK because there is a gap in the healthcare delivery system. Um, There are plenty of hospitals that service cancer patients, you know, adult oncology issues, right? And there are pediatric hospitals such as St. Jude that deal with the very young, but there's a gap for those that are in their teens or up to maybe their early 20s, and they don't fit into a St. Jude's, they're too old, and they can't relate to what somebody in their 60s or 70s are dealing with with adult 
forms of cancer. And so Teenage Cancer Trust took off and um, has been around for almost three decades. But 10 years ago in the U.S., Roger and Pete um, said, you know, why is there not a U.S. equivalent to this? And so they, um, they started uh, Teen Cancer America. And the goal is to have um, fully staffed teen cancer units in hospitals in every state. And so uh, they have pulled in the music community, as you might have guessed, many of those who've supported uh, Teenage Cancer Trust, but those that um, either have been touched by cancer themselves or a family member or so on. And we have become, uh, I guess, the support system now for that age group of cancer. We provide funding for research. We build out the, uh, the hospital units, the physical space. We give them a safe and, and welcome place where they are among their peers in hospitals. And so um, this has become, in particular, Roger Daltrey's passion. He's more passionate about Teen Cancer America and the charity than he is about the Who's music or anything else. But we... Um, so we host a backyard concert at a private residence in Pacific Palisades each year. And we invite uh, the music community to come and perform and help us raise money. And it's a, it's a very interesting curated event. Uh, I've, I've been on the board of Teen Cancer America, I think for seven or eight years now. And uh, my agency also gives of its time pro bono wise to help in the, in the marketing of the charity itself. But we, we put this uh, this concert together, and it's not an inexpensive ticket for people to attend. We charge around $5,000 a ticket for the night. Um, we uh, uh, Randy Gerber, Cindy Crawford's husband, and Cindy curate the menu. Uh, the founder of Patron helps put the bar part together. And then we ask artists to come in and perform. And uh, we've had – I'll give you an example of the kinds of artists we've had play – in um, a few years ago, we brought in Ed Sheeran at the very height of his popularity. He was kicking off his world tour. He came uh, to Los Angeles to play our backyard concert the night before. By the way, he's just a wonderfully nice uh, human being. Mm. Um, uh, but the Who always anchored the show. So in that particular year, we had Jewel and Ed Sheeran and Don McLean. I got Don and Ed to perform together, Van Morrison. And the Who, all a full electric concert in somebody's backyard. And hmm. uh, just uh, two years ago, we had the Foo Fighters and Pink uh, together with the Who. Um, I think our last show, we had John Fogarty and Green Day and uh, Billy Idol. And so I'm uh, putting together and working with our board to put together this year's show. We have um, some early commitments. We're working around the dates. We, we've hit, we have so many artists that should have become familiar with the charity. They say, yes, I want to play. It's just a matter of fitting it around their touring schedule and so on. So um, I had the privilege of uh, being at Keith Urban's house a few months ago. And uh, when he became an ambassador for the Buddy Holly Education Foundation, I was presenting him a guitar and uh, Keith was telling Keith about the charity. He said, why haven't you asked me to play this? I would love to play this. So Keith is, oh, we're trying to work around his schedule to get him to uh, into this year's show. Um, uh, Ringo Starr is a friend and we were at his home uh, recently and he's committed to play with his all-star band. Uh, Paul Simon has told us that, uh, that he will play. Uh, Dave Matthews band has told us they will play. The, so the issue is uh, Imagine Dragons have told us they will play. So, so we have a, this to be a three day festival. We do, we, we do. But 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 the point being, it they may not all be part of this year's show. What right. and the Who always play, right? So so um, what we have to do is we're trying to work the dates, uh, you know, among the fall dates, see what dates will work with whom. And then we put the show together and a few of them will inevitably fall out because they will not be available on the particular day we choose. But it's it's kind of an abundance of riches in terms of artists who are willing to play the show, want to play the show. It's become such a prestige thing for artists to actually be asked to play it because let's face it, 
they are supporting a charity that supports their fans. Those, those young people are the people who, you know, who download their songs. We used to say buy their CDs or albums. Now they're, they're buying vinyl again. Right. They're the ones who are the ticket buyers to their shows. Um, those are their audience. So it's a, it's a small but very gracious way for them to lend their, their talents to give back to help us raise money so that we can build the teen cancer units. And, um, and they, uh, uh, so they're, they're very, they're very giving of their time and their talents in helping us do that. And we raise in conjunction with our partner at, uh, partners at UCLA Medical Center, we're raising, you know, upwards of about 5 million in a night uh, toward this effort. Amazing. But there's, there's a lot of celebrities that come and support it. You know, for example, Paul Stanley from KISS comes every year and he gives a big KISS uh, package where you can hop on the plane with them and go tour with them. And, and so on. We, we have this star-studded array of celebrities who've gotten behind the charity and provide experiences to various things. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the Lakers are very involved in it. And so they provide packages uh, and things. So a very cool thing to be part of, but we try to never lose sight of the fact that there's a reason we're doing this. And the reason, despite all of the celebrity aspect and so on, is to improve the healthcare delivery system and give these kids a chance at life so that they'll be around and they can be the next you or me and fulfill their dreams. Well, amazing. It is uh, an incredible story to hear. Yours is an incredible story. And uh, forget Kevin Bacon. It's one degree of separation from Mr. Rick French. Rick, <laughs> thank you for being a part of uh, the formation of culture and cars in this world. And um, we look forward to uh, to all of your endeavors and the movies that are coming out and the sports teams and on and on and on. Thank you, Jason. It's been a, it's been a real treat to uh, to chat with you. Love the show, and thank you. Congratulations on all your success with it. it. It's amazing that you've created this concept and you've been able to get um, so many interesting guests to to talk about the convergence of culture and and cars. And so, it's it's a privilege to be part of it. Well, thank you for being part of the program. It's a privilege to have you, Rick. Thank you. Thanks again to my guest today, filmmaker, business leader, and car guy, Rick French. And to watch my interview with Rick, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram, at Cars and Culture SXM, and on Twitter, at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein. We'll see you down the road. If you're a Springsteen fan, you just found the promised land. Performances. Live concerts. Is there anybody alive out there? Celebrity guest DJs. This is Rob Lowe. Hey, baby, it's little Steven here. And more exclusives when listening to Bruce Springsteen's channel. Welcome, Bruce Springsteen, to E Street Radio, your home away from home. Great to be here. E Street Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 20.